Before we begin, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the class. I've personally taken a few of these classes, and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion, but wanting more. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. I'll see you there. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Hello, everybody. This is Richard from the Richard Listens podcast, and I'm Dr. Richard Olberger, clinical psychologist, and I am here today introducing a few of our guests on behalf of Division One of the California Psychological Association and our series in which we interview some top psychologists in the field and show you their contributions and how you, like them, can make an impact in the communities that you serve. Today, we have two wonderful psychologists who are impactful in the world of diversity and inclusion. They are Dr. Alicia Del Prado and Dr. Anastasia Kim. And we will be talking about some topics that are now difficult, challenging, sometimes cause anxiety for us and include controversy, and yet have been the theme of our world over the last year. Dr. Del Prado is a tenured associate professor at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, California, and a licensed psychologist in private practice in Danville, California. She's published numerous journal articles on chapters across cross-cultural psychology, personality, acculturation, and ethnic identity, including the first inculturation scale for Filipino Americans and provides consultation and trainings on multicultural issues. Dr. Del Prado is co-founder of the Asian American Psychological Association, AAPA, and the Division on Asian Americans with Multiple Heritage. And she was awarded both the Alameda County Psychological Association's Janet Hurwitz Award and the AAPA Okura Community Leadership Award. Joining us also is her collaborator on the book, and also tenured professor, Dr. Anastasia S. Kim, clinical psychologist specializing in working with adolescents and young adults with neurocognitive disabilities, anxiety, and depression. She's also an associate professor at the Wright Institute since 2004. She teaches, writes, trains, and consults on matters related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. She lives in the Bay Area with her husband and two children. Without further ado, we'll be welcoming them in and we'll be uh, excited to introduce their work and have an entertaining yet challenging discussion on important topics in everyone's heart right now. 
Thank you again. And without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. David Lin, my colleague, and he is currently the past chair of Division One for the Psychological Association, although I'm trying to keep him in that role for as long as possible. And he is here to introduce a little bit about the contributions and remarkable work of our speakers today. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. And, and also, you know, just want to call out Richard is our chair-elect for Division One for CPA. So thank you, Richard, for jumping into that role. We are very thankful to have Dr. Kim and Dr. Del Prado here with us. And, you know, one of the aspects of CPA and especially for Division One, is really talking about racial, ethnicity, diversity, inclusion. And, you know, right now where we are in our society, it is a very important issue that I think impacts all of us as psychologists, all of our patients, and any way we can continue to grow awareness, to bring the issues to light, talk about these things. I am completely for. And I, honestly, and you know, I just did an interview with the California Healthcare Foundation and they said, well, what are your goals for president of CPA? And I said, you know, one of the key ones is exactly that. We really need to bring forth the discussions about disparities. I'm going to make it a high priority for me next year as I'm making it now as well. I wanted to definitely Give a great thanks again to Dr. Kim, Dr. Del Prado. I think, Richard, I'll turn it back over to you. Thank you. Uh, for all our listeners, if you're a psychologist out there, if you're not in CPA yet, please check it out. It's a great opportunity for you to participate, to make change at a state level. I happen to be sitting somewhere on Tuesday and got seated next to a state senator, and he was very interested. He said he had a meeting on the book. So there are these opportunities. There are these moments. If you have something you're passionate about, change needs to be made and you are passionate, please bring it forward. I'm fortunate just from being a member and volunteering and signing up for a newsletter and attending a few meetings to be given a voice. And I think if I can do it, any of you can do it. I didn't go, you know, have special credentials in graduate school or get the best internship. And that doesn't mean that our heart and our passion can't continue to grow as we grow in our profession, whatever stage you're at. So that's my little soapbox. And without further ado, uh, you've heard the bios. Uh, welcome, Drs. Kim and Del Prado. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, Dave, for having us. This is Anastasia. It's really our honor and privilege to be in communication and in conversation with you today. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. And Anastasia and I published It's Time to Talk and Listen, How to Have Constructive Conversations About Race, Class, Sexuality, Ability, and Gender in a Polarized World a couple years ago. And it feels in some ways like ages ago because it was pre-COVID, but it's really an honor to be able to talk about talking and to kind of digest and process how we can, you know, use the tools and steps in the Kim Constructive Conversation Model to all the issues we care about as psychologists, psychologists in training, because there's a lot of disparities out there to address and not only talk about, but also act on. Yeah, it was interesting, even as we held the initial conversation and planning this, it felt like you had just written the book or, or as if it was written for right now. And so why is it that it seems like these issues have been there for a long time? Why is it right now that this is coming to the surface? I know a lot of my clients are bringing in, they, they don't want to avoid a phone call. 
They, they don't want to say the wrong thing, but at the same point, they don't agree. Why so much right now? And why is this particularly relevant in your work? Well, I mean, I think as you and your audience well know, these issues that are rising to the surface are by no stretch of the imagination new. And yet we have been living through an unprecedented time during the world of COVID, of lockdown. We haven't experienced this kind of thing as a global community for some hundred years. And I think when a stressor of this magnitude happens, it tends to amplify pre-existing stress points or pain points. So, you know, it's not surprising. It is very, very challenging and very, very painful for all of us. And at the same time, it's not surprising at all. COVID has amplified and has created a level of tsunami of uncertainty and anxiety and has unveiled, revealed the type of um, pain points that we have been trying to navigate for centuries, for millennia, you know, and it's just been amplified. And our capacity has also been stretched so thin because of COVID, ongoing racialized violence, that our capacity to deal with these pain points that have been magnified and amplified have also been quite limited. So as such, challenge becomes understandable and also remains very difficult. Well, I know we're going to delve a little bit more into where these issues are coming from in the year we've been through. But first of all, just because we want to let our listeners know about the two of you, how you came to this work, how you came to know each other and collaborate, feels like I'm so excited every time I speak with Dave, like just like as a psychologist, I'm supposed to be in my little office and research or do a session. I mean, so how did you find the privilege of finding a colleague that you really want to embrace this work together and share this mutual passion? So maybe a little bit starting with you, Dr. Kim, about your background and and how you came to meet Dr. Prado. Well, Alicia and I have known each other for quite some time when she came to the Wright Institute where I had been for the past 17 years. And I think that I want to say, I don't know about how she feels. It was an immediate kinship. So Alicia and I, she immediately felt like a sister to me, really in a genuine sense. And I think that over the time that we have known each other, initially as colleagues working in the same place, she has become such a dear, dear friend and honestly a sister to me. And she's somebody that I have turned to. We have had ups and downs. We have believed in each other and even broached difficult conversations between one another. And to me, that's the testament and the strength of any relationship. And so she's my sister (laughs) and she'll be my sister for the rest of my life. And so I want to say that first and foremost, and hopefully she feels similarly. Definitely. You know, I think my family and I are immigrants to this country. We came to the States. I grew up in Southern California, Los Angeles area. Came in 1980 when I was eight years old. And my family on both sides are from a little island at the tip of the Korean Peninsula called Jeju-do. Jeju-do is this beautiful, rich in culture and history uh, for people who are a little bit unfamiliar. It's known for three things, hard wind, hard rocks, volcanic rocks, and even harder women. So that's my legacy and lineage. Hard, bordering on scary women. I'm a mild version. People are like, you're so intense. I'm like, no, no, this is a mild Americanized version of where I come from. I share all that to say that I think my family history, and it's true of so many people's family history and their national and cultural history, 
can really be critical in shaping the careers that we end up choosing in our lives. And my story is really no exception. You know, I grew up very poor. Both sides of my family and my parents, you know, barely graduated from high school. They grew up against the history of the Korean War. The island that they grew up in, 70% of the island, the villages were burned down just prior to the Korean War. So the amount of, we're in the business of psychology, so we know the impacts of trauma and of violence. And that's the backdrop in which they grew up. So, you know, of course, the intergenerational transmission of all of that are things that we bequeath, that my, me and my sisters um, really bequeath. So we grew up in LA, um, Los Angeles area, and we grew up poor communities with lots of violence. And there were a lot of very challenging experiences that really critically shaped my childhood. So. I often remember, there's not really a picture of me as a child smiling. I mean, I think my d default mode was bitter. I think I'm still a bitter adult, so my husband says. And I think I was just angry oftentimes with so much stuff that we had to deal with. I think at the core of it was how to be really proud to be Korean, which is something that my mom really ingrained and instilled in all of us. How to be really proud of our history, proud of our resilience as people, and how to really hold that as a young girl growing up in this state, in a world in the U.S that really didn't seem to value me or people like me. And so when I was growing up, I really tried on a lot of things career-wise, as I think a lot of young people do. I wrote a lot of depressing poetry, very melodramatic poetry. I fantasized about being a, a Broadway star. And then my sisters insisted, this is what happens with younger sisters, insisted that I didn't have enough talent, so I should give up that pipe dream. And I think I was really struggling to find some sense of meaning um, and ways to channel much of my discontent and confusion, anger, depression, anxiety, rage. And then I stumbled upon a psych class in ninth grade, literally in ninth grade. And I kid you not, from ninth grade, I never veered off course in terms of wanting to become a psychologist. And I know it's kind of an uncommon sort of story and almost hard to believe, but I literally felt like it was an aha moment um, when I stumbled into that class because it felt like it was a means for me to understand my confusing, my often really overwhelming world. And I think in many ways, I wanted to be able to have some sort of a tool and a means to prove to the world that people like me, my family, people who I grew up with were not disposable because that's how I often felt. We're, we, you know, should not be disrespected, that we had some value, some respect that we were worthy and beautiful and we need to be honored and celebrated. And it felt to me like I had found a tool to understand that, to heal myself, an opportunity to heal myself and to give back and prove to the world somehow that we were worthy um, and honorable. So that's how I came and stumbled upon psychology. And, you know, there was really no other profession for me starting in ninth grade. Wow. Did the hard women approve of your choice? No, of course they didn't, Richard. <laughs> it was kicking and screaming the entire sort of a way. But I am, after all, my mother's child. The apple didn't fall too far from the tree. So I have also learned to respectfully kick back and struggle. Yeah, they're very approving right now. Very important for the topic of the day, right? Conflict fuels growth, right? Little resistance. We learn exactly where we're at sometimes when we start to push it back. Thank you, Dr. Kim. Beautiful insight into the story and the journey uh, and the pain and the struggle that goes with it. And, and we're certainly grateful that you arrived and I'm sure the Wright Institute is as well. And all the students. Dr. Del Prado, Alicia.
Yes. How about for you? Was the hug sanctioned? I'm just kidding. Totally <laughs> permitted. Actually, Anastasia, I don't know if you remember this, but I think I told you I loved you like in a faculty meeting. And I was like, oh my God, that just came out of my mouth. So thank God it's mutual. It was literally love at first sight. Alicia and I jokingly say that we are each other's spouses at work. I've tried explaining this concept to my children about having a work spouse. You know, we talk a lot in our field about self-care and how you don't burn out. You find yourself a work spouse. That's how, how you do it. That's my recommendation. But yeah, it's interesting when Anastasia, whenever we, you know, do podcasts or, you know, present together, I feel like I'm always learning new things about you and love you even more. So it's always lovely to hear about you and your narrative. And I really could resonate with so much for myself. I am a biracial woman. I'm Filipina American and Italian American. And I start with that, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. I start with that because really that has influenced kind of my path to psychology because my racial identity before I even knew what a racial identity was, was impacting how I saw myself, how I felt about myself. When I felt like I belonged, the many times I felt like I did not belong. So much of it was about my racial identity and of course how it intersects with my gender, with my religion and more. And so when I learned that I wanted to be a psychologist, it was also pretty early on. I come from a family, especially my mom's side of the family, where helping and service is a really big value. And when I was five and people would tell me, or ask me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would say an aerobics instructor, because my mom was an aerobics instructor, kind of tell the era I grew up in, right? A hairstylist, which I know we don't use that term anymore, but that's what I said. And my mom also did hair. So you could see the modeling hair. I'm horrible at doing my hair and I barely work out. So those are the confessions. And then the third was a nun, because I went to a Catholic school. So I did not do any of those things, but there was, you can see kind of a people-oriented kind of inclination there. Now, this is a real shame that you're not letting us do video because your hair is impeccable today. I do have to say that. Thank you. Thank Take you. pictures for your mom or, you know. <laughs> Will do. So my first exposure to a psychologist was actually my mom. And mom, I hope it's okay I'm saying this, went to a psychologist when I was a child. And I would go with her and I'd sit in the waiting room. Didn't know what she was talking about. But eventually learned in our family, we have anxiety, depression in our health history. And I remember thinking and feeling grateful to my mom's therapist because she was helping my mom, who I really love. I didn't want to be a psychologist at that point, but I do think it was a fundamental moment in my history because I saw a psychologist as someone that could help. And then, you know, kind of fast forward a little bit. My family was also disappointed, Anastasia, when I said I wanted to be a psychologist. They either didn't know what it was or thought I would not be able to support myself. So, so I did the whole, I want to be an MD thing, quickly learned that was not a good fit. And then realized when volunteering at UCSF in San Francisco, that it was the social worker role that was helping the patients is where I felt my passion. So you kind of take that combined with always really being cognizant of how racial dynamics were present in my family. My family, my parents are also divorced. And so seeing how cultural differences, as well as just marital conflict can intersect, I think I had a lot of questions and, and did find some answers in psychology, even with psychology's limitations. And so 
guess I'll end with that innately. I went to graduate school wanting to do cross-cultural psychology and, and spent time in a research lab doing that. And then when Anastasia and I crossed paths at the Wright Institute, we had this mutual interest in cultural diversity and social justice. And I was really interested in how do you bring up these topics in therapy? How do you broach them? How do you feel comfortable doing that? And then Anastasia had her aha moment of, you know, the eight steps of her model. And we were already scheduled, I think, to present in Berkeley, California. And when she told me the steps, I, I still remember, I was like, this is genius. I love this. It's, it's concrete. It's approachable. You can individualize the model. It's relational. And eventually we put it down on paper. It's incredible. And thank you for sharing your journey. I don't know why I had a picture of headbands and, and fitness instructors and all of that somehow arrives wherever you go, there you are. Somehow the two of you arrive at the right Institute, you know, on a serious level about, right. How do you bring up these topics in therapy or as the therapist? You know, I know for myself and that it's often been hard, right. Do, is it okay for me to represent culture? or speak about it? Or is it something that I have to keep under wraps, right? Can it be a part of my professionalism? Can it be integrated? So I just want to say, I appreciate how Alicia's story and developmental process is really informed by service. And not that I don't value service, because I certainly do. But I think a lot of my aha moments are very self-serving. <laughs> this might... <laughs> be a little deprecating, but honest, because, you know, the reason why I wanted to get into and become a psychologist was because I'm not doing well, and I need to figure out how to be better. And actually, the eight step approach was very in much of a similar spirit and vein, because I wasn't doing so well at work. And I was really feeling like, I need to leave this job. And I was actively looking for other work. And um, at that time, we were just having a really intense, intense conversations and struggles around multicultural education and training. And I was like, I'm out. This is too much. It felt intolerable. And I literally was thinking, I'm like, you know what? You all are not paying me enough to deal with this amount of stress. <laughs> I can't be bringing all this home again and again to my partner and two small kids. This was years sort of ago when my kids were much younger. And I just had a very sobering moment in which I thought, wow, you know, if I were to go to another job and if I'm being perfectly honest with myself, I probably will have to have similar challenges, if not worse, you know? So what I what it ended up happening was I wanted to create a strategic plan for myself and to dare myself to stay and dare myself to lean into this very, very difficult and intense conversations that were erupting and telling myself, well, you know, at least we're broaching it. At least we're having it. It's a hot mess and at least sort of we're doing it. So what can I do? And I really pulled from my training as a cognitive behavioral therapist, my work and influences and training in terms of attachment systems theory, tenets of Buddhist psychology, and developed a, an IEP, an individualized educational plan for myself so I could stay. And I'm so glad that it had resonance with Alicia. And really it is a step-by-step, -step, an eight-step approach. Because what I found most challenging with myself, with my clients and students and other people in my life, that we're all good people with good intentions. For the most part, I found that to be true. And yet, when we engage in conversations that are really intense, such as, let's try to have a good conversation about systemic racism in the United States, this isn't light or fluffy by any stretch of the imagination. 
we often get hijacked by the intensity and the debilitating impact of strong and difficult emotions. So I thought, what are the ways in which we can stay, that I can stay tethered and stay in it without compromising the integrity and the righteousness of my feelings and my experiences and still, you know, be in it in a way that is really concrete, constructive, meaningful, that has some capacity to move the needle. And so for me, that translated into, okay, I'm being hijacked left and right by my strong emotions. I don't know if you know about Koreans or Korean women, we have some strong emotions. I come from a very hot tempered. I am the kind of person, I'm not sure if any of your audience for whom this resonates, but I'm the person who reacts first and thinks about it later. So that's me. And I needed to really reel some of that in without compromising again, the integrity and the righteousness of what I was experiencing. It seems like everyone these days is trying new workout systems. Some people go to the gym, others may run, but I've recently discovered a great in-home method that is absolutely amazing. I'm taking in-jitsu classes online where I'm being trained and pushed in real time by top MMA fighters straight from the octagon. Injitsu.com provides real-time classes so you can get a top-notch workout from the comfort of your own home. These classes are absolutely going to sell out. So head over to injitsu.com slash Richard Listens to get your first class for free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash Richard Listens. Protecting your child's teeth is important in any sport. That's why Impact Dental Designs has put so much thought into their state-of-the-art mouth guards, protecting athletes in youth sports, all the way up to advanced MMA fighters and champions. And the best part is you can customize your own design for your own creative and fun mouth guard. So head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash Richard Listens. And if you purchase now, you get a free customized design and 20% off your order. So I began to ask myself, well, what the hell is my goal? You know, what is my goal? What am I trying to do here? Because I, I found myself constantly in the mode of defending and attacking, defending and attacking and defending and attacking. I'm in the business, supposedly, of being able to be really good listener, but I wasn't listening. As somebody else was talking, I was preparing my rebuttal and I was going to give it a really hard punch, you know. And so everything that I knew and everything that I was being trained in was being compromised. So I wanted, I started with number one, what is my goal? Number two, what are the things that could potentially get in the way of my goals? For me, and I think it's true for many people, strong, debilitating, intense, disorganizing emotions, and often fear, like fear, I might say the wrong thing, fear for me that I might actually say the thing that I shouldn't say, you know, all those kinds of sort of things. And the stakes are really high when we're talking about these things. So I wanted to be very clear. What are the things that trip me up? And then what are the things in which I, what are the ways in which I can stay really anchored and in this conversation? And that, you know, intervalues as step three, you know, I couldn't have any concrete argument because that could always be hijacked by various sort of things. But I wanted to pivot in terms of an orientation of my heart and my attitude and my energy. And values became a really concrete thing. How can I stay here? and have a lot of courage, you know, to be able to know that there's going to be challenges, but I want to be able to enact some of my goals. So that's steps one, two, and three. And then four is like, how do I really broach and open with some integrity 
and with some value of mutuality and reciprocity. How we begin anything makes a huge difference, as we know. And then how do I really share the sensitive cargo, sensitive information that the other person or persons might be not in agreement with, but how do I do it in such a way that doesn't compromise the connection and the integrity of my relationship connection with the other person? Step six is how do I listen? You know, this is, you know, I'm a therapist for any clients who might be listening. I am listening to you. To be boldly honest, listening is really an art form and something that requires a lot of practice. So this is something that I really needed to pause and resist the pull for rebuttals, I wanted to resist the pull for me to say, yeah, but that's not right. But, but, but instead really to try to understand the other person's position, try to understand the intention as well as the impact. And then step seven and eight really is like, how do I respond? How do I show up still in a relationship connection with my perspective and value and experiences that might be different the other person's, but that still allows both of us to have some mutual respect, some reciprocity. And then the final step is how do we continue? Because rare is a conversation that I've had about race, class, you know, sexual orientation, any of the isms in which at the end of it, I'm like, that was great. Now we have cured and find a solution <laughs> to systemic racism in the workplace. So how do I become comfortable with unfinished endings, with uncomfortable endings? And how do I commit to keep coming back again and again? So that's really the gist of the eight-step approach. The last step is comfortable with unresolved ending. Yes. And that is very uncomfortable for me, Richard, because I am somebody who loves to finish things and check it off, cross it off and move forward. And again, because this was my original IEP, I had to literally write that in for myself because I knew I'm, I shouldn't be advertising this publicly, but I am the person is like, bye, I'll never see you again in my life. If I see you happen to see you, it will be too soon. So I needed to really resist that default sort of mode and to be very sobering and humbling um, and to know with clarity that one conversation or even a handful of conversations isn't going to do it. You know, I needed to plant those seeds to keep coming back, water those seeds. Some may sprout, others won't. And I was realizing what I was doing. I was, I was planting the seed, pouring gallons of water and demanding sprout now, you know, and it just wasn't happening and it wasn't realistic. So for me personally, that last step of keep coming back, repeat, reflect, and rework and keep coming back to it becomes really, really, really important. Amazing. You know, and I love how you've really had to do your own work in creating these steps. And you're so honest about some of the ways in which intergenerational and cross-generational and cross-cultural trauma gets passed down is that either we want to duke it out and get validated or we want to stay away from the topic. So tying it into your work as a professor, uh, maybe you want to handle it or if you want to take a breath, uh, Alicia, how have you seen this go with trainees introducing these eight steps? What kind of responses have you seen or, or had and, and how has it been passed on maybe to the next generation? Well, I'd like to start with that. I think that we are, you know, standing on the shoulders of pioneers, many whom are people of color that, you know, have been thinking about these topics for a long time and have contributed so much to psychology. And, you know, I remember learning about the Sue and Sue model, about the importance of self-awareness and 
knowledge and skills. And that framework really resonated with me when I was a graduate student. So thank you to all those pioneers. I don't, we don't have enough time to list them all, but thank you and want to acknowledge them. And what we found as well. If you want to send them to us, we we can list them in the show notes. If for listeners, if there's authors, if there's people that listeners can connect to, if this topic, anyone you mention or any topic piques their interest, even if this scratches the surface, I I want to give space for that. So we don't want time to be an excuse. What we also noticed though, is that our students and myself as well felt good about the training on self-awareness, felt like, yes, Understanding the knowledge piece is critical. Like don't expect your client to inform you about their cultural identities. Of course, don't rely on stereotypes, but we also need to do our work in understanding diverse cultural histories of our clients. But the skills piece is where graduate student trainees are saying, but how do you do this? And so when I was teaching these classes, that was like, okay, great. Now what? When we're in the room. And so the skill piece is also something that I think colleagues too were feeling there was a dearth. And so I think that this approach, these steps are one way to get at the skills and the how-to. As Anastasia mentioned, it can be really dysregulating due to trauma, due to other reasons as well. And so having something concrete, having skills and tools in your toolbox is really important there so that you don't flee or just fight but you can also stay present and engaged and, and communicate in that. So what was really exciting we found is that our students, when we would present this, were like, yes, thank you. And we need this sooner. So before we take certain classes, and I think even some students were saying at orientation, you know, give us this. So, cause sometimes what's happening is they're talking about and engaging in difficult dialogues, but they're feeling like they don't have the skills to do that. And I don't want to generalize, of course, all students are, are different, but this is a common theme that we were getting. And I've heard from other programs as well. It's like, give us this sooner so that we don't have this big possible disruption in the classroom where cohorts are angry with each other or they're feeling like they don't know how to stay present. So yeah, so I think that in general, it's been a favorable response. And I think also, you know, just as, you know, we've tried to share kind of our own personal narratives, we do that in the book too. You know, this is lifelong work. It's never done, just like step eight says. And so, you know, being honest and genuine with times we've made mistakes in these conversations and it's okay. You could get back in it. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I know even at our CPA convention presenter, maybe Dr. Lynn can remind me, we started to speak about things that we should not say and trying to relate to a particularly cultural trauma or racial trauma. And so that all of a sudden I think creates a double bind, right? And a lot of the psychologists, the question was, well, but I empathize. Can I say I understand? Can I say I relate? And so now the whole psycho, you know, linguistics around relating and how we can show we connect, but not want to assume knowledge about history or that we do understand based on any a priori knowledge about what someone has been through or their ancestors. It just unfolded. It sent me home with a reading list, including ethical sellout. But maybe, you know, because it seems like this could be a several part mini series today, the last two questions, maybe each of you can take a turn is what are the provocative discussions that should be discussed to move the needle forward on diversity and inclusion as experts in this area? Where would you like to see the directions going here? And then lastly, whoever wants to 
to handle the other one. What can psychologists do? What can we do to make small changes and help advance, you know, the biracial people of color as what that stands for and, and how that population advances in the field of psychology? I'm happy to take a stab at it initially. I do want to say, you know, to, to your last point before we transition here, Richard, that, you know, I think that we are in this business and maybe this is our consistently fast paced culture. You know, I need some tricks and tips, do's and don'ts. And I think that for many of us who are psychologists, we know because we are wired as social emotion. If we have an undue reliance words, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. It is an inevitable failure, you know. If we hide behind the blunt instrument of just these are the woke words and these are the taboo words, you know, and stay away from that. I think that we have to move beyond that, you know, and really honor the fact that the emotional experience, and I say this as a CBT person, but the emotional transfers and the dynamic energy between me and you, between us and other sort of like folks, is something that is beyond any concrete word. And that's what we need to lean into. And that's why I think values in particular isn't like, this is what you do. I don't show up with my clients and sort of say, thank God you have me <laughs> because I'm a very safe, a woke and very cool therapist. You know, I mean, I can't advertise that. Even if I told my clients that they would wonder what is wrong with me. Instead, through our experience together, I am able to show and we together experience that sometimes even as a therapist, I say the wrong thing. You know, sometimes as a therapist, I get it all wrong. But the reason why my client comes back is because they trust and they feel that we are honest and that we are brave enough to be honest with each other. And so I want to really punctuate that. And sometimes, you know, we get so attached to things like policy and law. Law, again, is a very blunt instrument. Just because you say it's no, it's against the law to do. I mean, we've said it's against the law to discriminate based on X, Y, and Z. But why are we still talking about? This? So I think the way that we change our energy, the orientation of our heart is a radically different thing than the very, you know, um, concrete do's and don'ts tips. With that said, I think think that there are so many. I mean, what can we and what should we not talk about? That's a shorter list, in my opinion, because there are so many things that we have to and that demand, not just some option. I think if we, for those of us in a privileged position, it's like, hmm, what should we think about? For those who are subjugated by various marginalization, this is not an option or a privilege afforded to them. So I think that we need to have a sense of urgency. Yes, things like systemic racism, classism, heterosexism, ableism, you know, all of that. And I think that we need to really think about the very challenging state of the world that we are living in. So, you know, as the U.S., for instance, you know, much of even California, you know, a lot of folks are getting vaccinated. And so there's been like, you know, a particular things that are lifted. Now you can go without masks, things of sort of that nature. I want folks here in the U.S. to hold that while simultaneously recognizing that others around the world are literally struggling to survive, that thousands and thousands of people are dying daily in places like India, you know, today, right now. And that as vaccination is being afforded to us, that big pharma yet again has chosen profit over people and the limitations of access to life-saving vaccines for people around so many parts of the world, including places Africa, Central America, and Asia, that's a very systemic racism and isn't something of the past. It's absolute 
completely alive and well and thriving right now. And I think that this is, these are the guises under which they are being manifested at present. The continued systematic denigration and violence of and dehumanization of Black bodies, the anti-Blackness that pervades across the globe. And we've seen movements, but movements alone are not sort of enough. The weaponization of Asian American Pacific Islanders and Asian folks around the globe. And I think, you know, opportunities to really challenge these very dangerous narratives such as the model minority absolutely need to be unpacked and the history of how Asian folks historically and presently continue to be used to challenge things like black liberation and freedom, even as Asian folks and Asian elders are under assault and Asian experiences are being erased. Asian people make up 60% of the world population. And we have one narrative in the US about the Asian experience, the model minority. That isn't total BS, you know, and there's over 2000 living languages sort of in Asia. And we have one story doesn't make sense. The ongoing assault recently on trans youth, assault on women's ability to choose the legislation that was just passed in Texas, the ongoing and escalating violence in the Middle East, you know, seemingly this taboo topic that absolutely warrants listening and talking and unpacking, the erosion of trust in our government's civil unrest and protests that are happening in places in the U.S. to Colombia, and some of the things that I've been particularly following personally, the advancement of tech that makes our lives so much easier. Without technology, we couldn't have survived or worked, connected with other people in the last year. And yet the pace of it, at that advancement is accelerating at a really scary rate, in my opinion. Jobs are being automated. AI is taking over. And there are certain people, to be sure, are benefiting and profiting. And there's a whole lot of people globally that are being left behind, you know, are being disposed, if you will. And I think finally, the, I don't know, the growing nationalism polarization around the world, the abundance of vitriol on Twitter. I have a hard time getting on Twitter because of the toxic, caustic um, sort of energy there. And we're going further and further apart as we are trying to reckon with intractable global problems that demand, absolutely demand more and more collaboration such as such as climate justice, you know. So I'll say this and I'll pass it to Alicia. I think that there is such when we're talking about diversity, equity and inclusion and about cultural issues, there's such a demand for safe. Is this a safe space? I need to be sort of comfortable. And I think that's total. Honestly, I think that's some sort of a guise that sort of says, I demand comfort, you know, and I think we need to part of what we can do as psychologists and people who are really invested in this work to resist the pull for this idea and notion of safety and instead lean into and cultivate courage and bravery. Because, of course, you know, courage is what we do in the face and not fear and adversity, not the absence of it. And it's actually what allows us to build skills resilience and our capacity to reimagine and to aspire to a more just and equitable world. So, you know, get uncomfortable. I hope that as we come out of COVID, I don't know if I could do some sort of branding, which I'm terrible at. Uncomfortable is the new cool thing. You know, if you're not uncomfortable, you ain't doing any of the work and certainly not DEI. This is like me trying to get in shape. And if I'm like the next, you know, bicep curl, if I'm uncomfortable and I stop, guess what, Anastasia Kim? your muscles are not going to get stronger. It's at the point of discomfort and point at which my muscles literally break down so that they have the capacity and the possibility to come back together and to rebuild. So I'm hoping that as psychologists and other folks outside of the field who are invested truly in this work, 
for us to absolutely embrace um, discomfort. Discomfort has to be the new thing. Dr. Kim, I prefer the term ruthless compassion. And with that, I hope you will give me acceptance for interrupting you in any way because your words are so powerful, so passionate. I'm tempted to offer you a podcast of your own or somehow I feel like offering social media and going on Clubhouse or some media with you would be a solution, but I know that we must then go in there and encounter the lion's den opposition and resistance. So maybe there is a place for that. I hope that Division One can give greater voice to your work. Dr. Del Prado, you want to send us out with any exclamation marks on that? Oh, sure. I mean, I obviously anesthesia highlighted so many important points. So I think I'll just, you know, when when you were listing just the abundance of topics that need attention, you know, it I was holding the question asked about how do we help our BIPOC students? How do we help our Black, Indigenous, people of color? It makes small changes or help them. And, and I, I think it's daunting, right? I know I feel daunted as I think I'm considered mid-career now, a uh, professional, um, but I feel daunted. And so I guess my hope would be to help to not minimize it, you know, because I think that can feel like gaslighting and can feel like I don't belong in this field because they're not seeing what, you know, just as an example, maybe my relatives in India are dying and they're not naming it and and go on and on and on. So there's that. And then at the same time, instilling hope and flexibility in that to dismantle these things, it's urgent, but it also takes time. And I think those can feel very much at odds. I want our students to know that because I think it can feel like people don't care. And when the change isn't quick enough, right? Because we want that change to be quick. So we've heard a lot about flexibility in this year and past year. And so I think we're also teaching our students that too, not to lower their standards or their expectations, but also that we are in perfect field and we do need to strive to be better, but be compassionate to each other. Real quick, any preferred ways for students, listeners to get a hold of you, to learn more? Get a copy of The Eight Steps or the book. Let's start with you, Elise. You've got the mic. Sure. Well, I am on Instagram at Dr. Del Prado, and I like to do Time to Talk Tuesdays. And so I'll put blurbs up there, quotes. Sometimes they're from our book. Sometimes they're from things I've seen that I like to share. So that's one way to connect with us. And then I'll speak for you, Anastasia. Both of us have blogs on psychology today. Mine is called Speaking from the Heart. You could find me in the Wright Institute website and also AnastasiaKim.com. It's spelled Anastasia Kim. Immigration story, but it's spelled AnastasiaKim.com. So you could find me there. I think the last thing I want to say is to really appreciate Richard Yu and Dave Yu um, for inviting Alicia and I, for having an interest in our work. And to the psychologists out there and students aspiring to be psychologists, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful time to be a psychologist. I think our capacity to have impact, not only within the field, but at the world at large, the world is really aching and struggling and in pain. And I can't think of, you know, better leaders than psychologists to be able to help shepherd the path towards healing. And so this is the work that Alicia and I do professionally, I would contend that this is also the work that we do personally. 
And I can't think of a more worthy endeavor than that we do. And so it's an honor to be doing this work alongside both of you, Dave and Richard. Thank you again. for. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you both so much. And I really, I want to thank Dave. Dave is a, a modest guy, but I think he's an amazing president and leader and friend. And I really encourage all of you to follow his lead as a father, as a man, as a family man, and as a psychologist. And please join CPA or find vision that supports your interests and find some way to give back and share your thoughts, even the uncomfortable ones. Dave, any parting thoughts? No, I just want to say thank you so much both of you. It's so nice and, and actually very moving. Thank you all. That was a real pleasure. I really appreciate you tuning in to my podcast and particularly this series from CPA. We're looking to give you 10 to 12 podcasts on topics that are really impactful in the field, meaning the psychology field. And hope you and your professional work you can reach me on Instagram at Richard Listens, at Doc Zero on Clubhouse working on men's groups every Wednesday at noon and richardlistens.com if you or someone you know needs help and you're working personally and professionally to have a CPA. Thank you all. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Richard Listens, and I'm out. I'm a big fan of MMA sports. It's rough and elegant at the same time. I think my number one fear of stepping into a ring like that would be protecting my teeth. Luckily, the guys over at Impact Dental Designs have created an amazing mouth guard that is state of the art. These mouth guards are currently being used by some of the best MMA fighters, but even better, they can be tailored to any sport. Football, hockey, boxing, soccer, the list is endless. Head over to impactdentaldesigns.com slash richardlistens to get 20% off your order and a free customized design for your mouth guard. Lastly, I'd like to proudly mention our sponsor, Injitsu.com, providing remote at-home training from some of the world's top MMA fighters. These classes are not pre-recorded. These trainers come to you live and coach you for the duration of the session. I've personally taken a few of these classes and I've never felt so inspired and accomplished in a workout session. They'll leave you both on the floor in exhaustion and with a drenched shirt. There are still slots available for online classes, so head over to injitsu.com slash richardlistens to get your first class free. That's I-N-J-I-T-S-U dot com slash richardlistens. Take care, everyone.